Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Sometimes the healthcare system itself needs a doctor, even more than the patient does. Young physicians who enroll in the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program are focused on making healthcare work better. This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs and Communications talking with Dr. Harlan Krumholtz, who leads the program. Maybe a good place to start is your own work. You found some disconnects between what we know works best and what we actually do. Can you give me an example of that? Well, a lot of our work has, has focused on practice in the real world, understanding the patterns of care, trying to observe the degree to which we've really brought into practice the kind of knowledge that's been generated from clinical trials and mm -hmm. other settings that is, that's taught us about what the best way to practice is. And, and also trying to verify and validate that those practices work well in real-world clinical settings. And, for example, you know, some of the early work that we did was looking at the use of beta blockers in the treatment of acute myocardial infarction or heart attacks. And we've known from the trials that there was strong evidence that patients who were treated with these drugs after having heart attacks had about a 20% reduction in the risk of death. And we showed that in populations beyond those studied in the clinical trials, that there was a similar finding. So that we, we were able to confirm the trial findings in mm -hmm. broader populations, but when we looked around the country, we saw that only about 50% of the patients who we would consider to be ideal candidates for the drug were being treated. That is, had no contraindications, no reason not to be treated. Right. And uh, this was 10 years after the original trials were published. Wow. And in some areas of the country, only a third of the patients were being treated uh, this way. And in the best places in the country, only three quarters were being treated. So. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to understand this and mm -hmm. to try to remedy it. And today we're really in a much better place than we were then. But it was an example where people thought it was enough to stop at the trials. And right. in fact, it, there was a need to study further to understand what's going on in the real world, to demonstrate that the trial results would work in real world settings, and that we could then work to ensure that there was appropriate adoption of that knowledge into practice. And fortunately, you know, it took a while, but I think now we're, we're recognizing that we need to do that a much more rapidly after the trials are published. So is that similar to the kind of work that your clinical scholars are interested in doing? Well, the clinical, the clinical scholars are engaged in a broad range of, of efforts, but I would say broadly they're thinking about how to improve healthcare delivery, how to improve clinical decision makings for individual patients, and how to sort of wring better performance out of the healthcare system. And, and the decision making part of it is uh, sort of more traditional, and we've been spending a lot of time in clinical research thinking about that, although they, they broaden it to think about how do we support physicians who are making decisions, how do we provide better information at the point of care, mm -hmm. how do we become accountable for the kinds of decisions they're made, how do we ensure that we're sharing the decision with the patient and incorporating their values, preferences, and goals. So that part of it, I think, is more traditional. The idea of thinking about the healthcare system is a little newer, mm -hmm. and it's about trying to make sure that Healthcare delivery is achieving the best effectiveness, efficiency, equity, patient-centeredness, timeliness, safety uh, for our patients, and that it's the performance is at the highest possible level. And so in pursuing that, they may pursue the kind of research that I described earlier, but there's a whole range of other work that can be done, including thinking about communities and populations, but mm -hmm. also within hospitals and and. Uh, um, outpatient venues and a whole range of different places as they think deeply about what can we do to elevate our performance? What can we do to do better for our patients? And how can we, how can we heal the healthcare system?
Now, there are no shortage of health policy programs, health administration programs, but you're targeting specifically folks who are clinicians and intend to remain clinicians. What do they bring to this work that's different, special? Well, I think they bring the sensibility of someone who knows what it's like to sit across the bedside from a patient in need. You know, the the profession, it's such a wonderful profession, and a profession attracts people who are drawn to individual stories and mm-hmm. want to help individual people. And what we're trying to do is, is sort of broaden that perspective and show them in a way that they can make a contribution that may help thousands, millions, you know, larger numbers of individuals right. that they may never meet using the perspective that they gained from trying to help individuals. And so never losing that that focus as a patient advocate or, or advocate of health for populations, individuals, but trying to generalize that maybe in, in ways that will generate knowledge that's going to help people more broadly. The other distinction about the program that's quite different is that we have an aspiration to really help prepare future physician leaders. Mm-hmm. So in that quest, what we're trying to do is to help them see a larger picture, to equip them with the skills that they need to deeply analyze evidence, understand it, generate knowledge, know how it should be applied, and how can they work within organizations to be effective leaders? That is, you know, I think some people understand leadership in terms of inspiring quotes or people who are up on the podium uh, who uh, seem quite charismatic. Mm -hmm. We try to instill an understanding of leadership in that of an effective um, person who can manage their way through complicated organizations and understand how to how to make people work better how to make a, uh, how to bring people together for common goals and that may mean sometimes managing up because they may not always be the leader of an organization mm-hmm. it sometimes means how do you handle power and hierarchy within organizations how can you uh, responsibly attend to the needs of those around you and try to bring out better performance by the entire group and team that might otherwise be possible. In medicine, we're taught, I think, largely to think as individuals, and that's going to have to fall away. We need to begin to think more broadly about teams and the way in which we work together in an integrated fashion and mm-hmm. respect each other's contribution, not just as physicians, but as other healthcare professionals and others beyond that. And how can we work together to be accountable for what we produce together as a group? And these are some of the messages that we try to instill in the group, and we try to inspire them to think about what they can contribute in the, and give them the skills they need to do that. How do you teach that? Well, there's a variety of ways. There, there are some specific skills. You know, for a long time in medicine, I think there was the belief that, well, if you're smart, you can manage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the smartest guy in the lab should be able to become the chief of medicine or dean of a medical school. And, you know, that's really missing the whole science of organizational psychology mm-hmm. and organizations and management. And, you know, so we try to instill a respect for social sciences and, and ma- management and and the way in which organizations work and the way in which teams perform. And so we try to um, help them understand that there are a specific set of skills that they can acquire which can give them a certain facility with trying to make things work well. And that this isn't a matter of happenstance. It's not just a matter of, of aptitude, but it is also a matter of dedication to uh, to practice and to gaining those skills and to learning from people who've got expertise in those areas. So so that's one way that we do it. We we have a curriculum that's broad-based. It, it There's a community part of it where we try to say, gee, have you ever thought about the people you're trying to help mm-hmm. and what their perspective is, what they might perceive the value of the research is, and even asking them about the research or engaging them 
Or if you've studied them, have you ever thought of actually giving them the results when you're done? Right. Just showing that kind of respect for the people who are contributing to the project. And, and all of this kind of messaging kind of, I think, begins to get people thinking in different ways than they might in a traditional medical environment where there's a hierarchy and they're usually on the top of the hierarchy. And it's sort of been for years that whatever goes on the physician side goes. And, and uh, to have them be a little more humble about that, at the same time, they're aspiring to, to become leaders. And, that, uh, and then we try to model behavior that we think is uh, appropriate for this and give them examples of former scholars and others who are doing work that sort of combine this kind of perspective and are actually doing you know, quite important things and making good progress in healthcare. And so that whole package where we're trying to liberate them a little bit from the kind of hidden curriculum that they've been having and to try to get them to think in different ways about how they can contribute tends then to produce people who can become very creative and innovative and, and effective in the ways of which uh, they might uh, try to make difference in the way in which healthcare is delivered. It's interesting because we've always been fed this mythology about leadership, that it's just this internal thing. Arthur will always pull the sword from the stone. You're almost, you're born, not made. Right, and I, I think it's an unfortunate uh, thing because, you know, as much as you might uh, look at Obama as an inspiring figure and, and, and charismatic, no way he wins that election without an effective team that mm -hmm. actually executes. I mean, they actually gets the voters out, gets the message. I mean, I think if you really look at the Obama campaign as an example, its success lied in the organization and the ability to galvanize people. The ins inspirational part was important and, of course, uh, widely appreciated. I enjoyed uh, the speeches. But I know that his success was actually in the behind-the-scenes, rolling up your sleeves, making an organization execute the plan well. And that's sort of what we're trying to explain to the scholars, which is it's not just being born this way mm -hmm. or it's not just having uh, sort of raw intelligence for a certain area because, of course, there are many different kinds of intelligences and we try to get them to appreciate strengths and weaknesses in various different areas. So it's not just that you have that one thing, but it's not that, okay, because I've been smart enough to get into medical school and I've been smart enough to excel that I must naturally know how to lead an organization. Right. Then Spock would run the enterprise, Right. Right. I mean, that, that it requires a certain set of skills. And, and it's not to say some people can't do it without that formal training. Mm -hmm. But, boy, there's a lot of, I bet, on-the-job learning and, and many more mistakes than might have occurred had someone been adequately prepared for how you think about organizational work. In fact, our leadership uh, module is taught by an organizational psychologist. Mm -hmm. And he does it in a case-based learning. So he'll ask the scholars, Let's recount an experience you had in an organization that you thought was dysfunctional. You know, it didn't go well. Right. And let's try to take it apart. Like, what exactly happened? And what could you have done? Where were you in the hierarchy? Who was in power? How did they dispense the power? What, what, what might have been better about this? Oh, that's interesting, because usually when we deconstruct those things, we just talk about how horrible the leader was, right? Or try to, right, exactly, try to affix blame. Yeah. And one thing we try to emphasize in the scholars program is thinking in, about systems. And if everyone is making the same mistake or you're seeing the dysfunction sort of repetitively displayed, you might want to start looking at the way in which the organization is constructed and the way in which the systems are, are developed. Because it may be that they're fostering a certain kind of dysfunction right. that is going to be repetitively you know, demonstrated. And rather than thinking about, gee, there's this one person who's really just awful – and then, by the way, there's this other person that's off, and there's this other person that's off. Mm -hmm. And then you start saying, why is everyone acting like this? Right. And you say, oh, my goodness, 
Maybe the fix isn't in blaming someone or getting rid of someone, but it's in thinking, why, why are we doing things the way we're doing? Maybe there's a better way to do this that would, in fact, bring out the best in everyone rather than the worst and, and would also enhance all of our performance. So that's a theme in medicine these days because it's, when we think about safety and effectiveness of our work, we're thinking about how can we develop systems that are going to enhance our performance but also, as you think about what is it that makes a good working environment, what is it that makes an effective organization, it's also systems that, that, that empower us as individuals working collectively as teams that achieve great things together that we wouldn't be able to do alone. You mentioned earlier the work you do with them in community-based research, which is something that Yale is obligated to do with junior faculty under the Clinical and Translational Science Award. Now, in a lot of CTSA sites, that's meant setting up a new program to do it. Why was the decision made to use the RWJ Scholars Program to do it? Well, we, um, we embarked on this direction in uh, 2005, and when we got a renewal of the RWJ grant, we were renewed for 10 years, and we made a commitment to integrating within our curriculum and in our program a focus on the community. Recognizing that some of our scholars might be interested in careers that would be focused on community-based participatory research, but beyond that, uh, recognizing that there were skills and perspectives that could be gained from working closely together with the community that could benefit individuals no matter what direction they went. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what I meant by that was that here, here's a first-class medical school. Scholars have been coming through for years. And we recognized that they had no idea of the neighborhoods around the medical school. They had no idea about so many aspects of New Haven and they also had a very traditional mindset about that uh, of investigators coming up with questions, studying groups, patients, or populations, and then walking away and publishing their papers, and not really thinking about, well, what was the experience of the person participating in the study? Mm -hmm. And might they, again, as I said before, might they want to be respected enough that they would be told even what happened? What were the results? And might they wonder what has been done as a result of the results? Well, and might they profit from learning the results? Might they make better healthcare decisions? Which even led us to the question of might the research question have even been better mm. had some discussions been had with the people you were trying to help from the very outset? And these kind of partnerships, the idea of respecting the people you're trying to study, integrating them in even at that study is a very difficult one because you, you get a little uncomfortable. You think, well, Jesus, my study, it's not their study. But right. then once you start saying, well, why are you doing this? I mean, it's not really about the paper. It's about improving health and mm -hmm. improving health care. And so once you start saying to yourself, that's the goal. The goal is really to help people. Then you begin to think more broadly about who sh you should include. So anyway, we embarked upon this. It's been an extraordinary, really wonderful experience. And it, for even for scholars who say, this isn't really where I'm going to focus, mm -hmm. it's been, I think, uh, uh, really great. We had some bumps along the way. You know, we went from a very traditional kind of look at this. And in the beginning, the scholars asked us, why are you making us do this? And some of them said, you seem to be more interested in the community than us. You know, you're, <laughs> you're kind of volunteering us to work in the community. And it took a while to explain to them, no, this is a fundamental part of the curriculum because of what we believe it's going to do for you in your professional development. We are not doing this to volunteer to the community. We're doing this because we think fundamentally there are important aspects of this that will help you mm -hmm. in your career. And we also, you know, hope that we will, the dividend will be that the, the program will have left an important footprint in the community which will have improved health through this collaborative effect, not by telling people what to do, but by working with them. 
And so over the time, this has just become ingrained and integrated, and it only made sense when the CTSA came out. So pleased to see this as part of the, the call for proposals that we could contribute. And mm -hmm. there was no reason to reinvent that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, for the first proposal, we had our community steering group virtually write the part of the grant that went in with this, I mean, with people from the School of Medicine. But we had a ready group that was prepared to jump in, and they, they largely influenced that part of the grant. And I think it was an important part of, of course, Yale's got so many strengths, but when the grant was being reviewed, that, was a, that I think, was also recognized yeah. as a strength. Many good, strong research institutions who weren't funded on the first round, I think, fell flat on that. We had actually people from the community participating actively in writing that part, and I believe the reviewers were able to appreciate that. Yeah, because so, you can't just build a relationship suddenly because you've got a grant. And also, gee, if you want the community to be suspicious of you, go to them and tell you there's a grant that we can get if right. you help us. Yeah. They've only heard that a million times and then seen yeah. investigators walk away from them with the money once they get the grant. And because we had been able to engender trust and had worked together and shown that once we got the RWJ grant, we didn't run away, we embraced them and we were good on our word, I think it helped us move them to be engaged with the CTSA grant in a way that they said, you know, we trust you now. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to say they didn't trust people before, but they had heard before a lot of instances where people said, help us on this grant and we'll help you later. Mm -hmm. And the later never materialized. Right. Since the CTSA, your scholars have had more interaction with people who are fellows in other programs. How has that changed their experience? Well, you know, of course, they've been working with, in the community. And then also, more recently, we've begin to integrate those individuals in the School of Medicine or interested in community-based research in with the scholar program. We did that a little bit in the beginning. It's become stronger through the CTSA. Mm -hmm. And I think it's broadened the perspective of the scholars. You know, in the beginning, they were also asking us, well, are people really interested in this at the School of Medicine, and who else is around? And a lot of the, a lot of us who have been doing this, I, mean, I, my, I guess my community and my research largely has been the healthcare system, you know, right. not so much the community around Yale. And so they were wondering, well, who's interested in this? And I could tell them how important it was, but it was even more useful to have faculty members and others who they could see were making a career based on this. Right. So that, you know, like I said, a lot of them knew that that wasn't what they wanted to do, and this was really an important part of their education. They were threw themselves into it. But some of them really wanted to make a career out of this, and they needed to see that there were others doing that too, by interacting with others in the School of Medicine outside the program, but who are interested in community-based participatory research, uh, that's been quite, quite good. The CTSA has also been important just as a, you know, for the range of activities and support mm -hmm. it's provided, has shown the scholars that, you know, there's a real investment in clinical research in the School of Medicine, and that um, has, I think, you know, been helpful also. But particularly around this community piece, it's, it's been very useful because we've worked together to provide educational opportunities, and it's drawn those from around the school to the scholar program and allowed, allowed them to meet them and interact with them. Now, some of your alums have gone on to be Yale Center for Clinical Investigation Scholars. How's that influenced their careers? Well, it's been fundamentally important. I mean, what a great program. It's, uh, you know, people are at an early, critical, vulnerable juncture in their careers. Mm. They may not have uh, gotten enough preliminary data or publications to really be competitive yet for K awards. They need support. And the YCCI Scholar Program has allowed them to, to put in proposals. And, and then once they're, they're granted, has, it has this really wonderful aspect to it where there are mentors who are separate from their immediate mentors, mm -hmm. sort of at a distance, 
who can come in, give them support, give them advice, and, and then the whole uh, YCCI you know, group is available to them. They, they see a community of others who are funded in this way. Right. They can attend seminars. And, and that is really critical at the beginning. It's almost like a sort of social support network, you mm-hmm. know, that you can see you're not alone, mm-hmm. that the institution's interested in you, and that they're willing to, it's to provide this preliminary seed money to get you started and to believe in you. And, and then it's also some recognition because within their sections, you know, in that beginning period, uh, maybe there's a little uncertainty about whether somebody's really got what it takes to succeed. And, mm-hmm. and the K award is great indication of that. But for many people, they can't get that right away because they're coming right out of fellowship. They haven't had the time to assemble the portfolio that they need to make them the most competitive for the K award. And uh, this is a great stepping stone toward toward that. And, and you know, the people that I've mentored in this direction, uh, two have gotten Ks, and one is a co-investigator on an outcomes research center. So they've all three gotten federal funding now mm-hmm. really to support their careers and are doing terrific work. And, and I really credit the YCCI program to giving them that early start and, and being very supportive of them at a time when they needed it the most. Thank you. That was Harlan Krumholtz, director of the Yale Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program.